Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, Nestle CEO Mark Schneider told investors in February that 2020 was a year of hardship for so many, yet he was inspired by the way it has brought all of us closer together. And also an improvement in Nestle's profitability and return on invested capital. The global pandemic, Schneider said, did not slow us down. You know what else didn't slow them down? Ample evidence that their profitability relies on a supply chain that includes literal slave labor in the Ivory Coast. The Supreme Court recently heard Nestle USA versus Doe, a long-running case that seemed to get at how much responsibility corporations have for international human rights violations, but in the end may have taught us more about what legal tools are useful in getting to that accountability. We got some clarity on the case from William Dodge, professor at University of California Davis School of Law. Also on the show, Donald Rumsfeld launched wars of aggression in Afghanistan and Iraq that killed hundreds of thousands of people and approved torture at Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib. To hear elite media tell it, though, the former defense secretary should be remembered as complex and paradoxical. The New York Times described his arrival in Washington as, quote, like an all-American who had stepped off the Wheaties box, close quote. And AP suggested that all of those dead Iraqis were mainly a thorn in Rumsfeld's side, with the headline, Donald Rumsfeld, a cunning leader undermined by the Iraq war. Obituaries noted that Rumsfeld expressed no regrets about his decisions. Media appear to have none of their own. Counterspin talked about Rumsfeld's media treatment back in 2008 with the Center for Constitutional Rights' Michael Ratner, whose book, The Trial of Donald Rumsfeld, had just come out from the new press. We'll hear that conversation on today's show. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. U.S. media are fixing for a fight with China, Russia, or both. As Greg Shupak writes for FAIR.org, commentary on the recent G7 and NATO summits and Biden's meeting with Vladimir Putin was full of praise for the White House for ramping up new Cold Wars, alongside criticism for being insufficiently aggressive in, you know, fighting for democracy. A Wall Street Journal editorial celebrated an escalated possibility of nuclear war, stating, quote, a bipartisan consensus is forming that accepts and capitalizes on President Trump's 2019 exit from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. This is good news for American security, close quote. China has an estimated total of 320 nuclear warheads, compared to a U.S. arsenal of 5,800. But the journal is mad that the budget didn't give the Marines 48 Tomahawk missiles they wanted, which, they worried, quote, could suggest some remaining skittishness in the Biden Pentagon about putting ground-launched weapons with significant range into actual use, close quote. No words on what that actual use means for human beings. The Washington Post's George Will is clear that he supports U.S. troops on European soil to try to intimidate Russia and increase chances of a ground war on the continent. But he's mad that, quote, only the United States, Britain and five smaller nations will in 2022 spend the 2 percent of their gross domestic product on their militaries. That is the minimal target that NATO adopted seven years ago, close quote. 
He doesn't note that NATO's combined military budget in 2020 exceeded $1 trillion as compared to Russia's estimated annual military expenditure of $61 billion. George Will sums up his and others' core concern in chilling language, writing that under Biden, quote, the United States is ready to resume its responsibilities regarding the maintenance of an orderly world, close quote. It's terrible to think of all the bloodshed deemed acceptable or desirable in maintaining that order. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. At what point do corporations have to be legally accountable for the realities that drive their profits? If you are, for example, Nestle, and you make your money from cocoa that comes, as most of the world's cocoa does, from the Ivory Coast, where, according to the U.S. Department of Labor, 37% of children are engaged in hazardous work, well, what's that to do with you? In the case Nestle USA versus Doe, recently heard by the Supreme Court, the plaintiffs were six people from Mali who attested to being trafficked as children to the Ivory Coast and forced to work on cocoa farms that supplied Nestle and Cargill, the other defendant, where they were not paid, given scraps of food, beaten with whips and tree branches, locked in dirt floor shacks, and tortured if they tried to escape. They were dough in the case because they still feared, years later, reprisals from former traffickers, owners of and buyers from the farms where they were, let's just say it, enslaved. As often happens, this story of humanity and morality was boiled down to legality. And the outcome was confusing in terms of its implications. Here to help us sort through it is someone who's been engaged in this case and its underlying questions for some time. William Dodge is Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law and John D. Eyre Chair in Business Law at the University of California Davis School of Law. He joins us now by phone from California. Welcome to Counterspin, Bill Dodge. Thank you, Dean. Well, this is a law story. It's about what law can be applied where. But we don't want to lose sight of the reality in back of it, which is child slavery, and that many people want corporations to be accountable for all of the things that put money in their pocket, for them not to be able to say, what, a farm in the Ivory Coast? I didn't run that farm. You know, I'm sorry if bad stuff happened there, but it's nothing to do with me. So let's get into this particular case of Nestle USA, Inc. versus Doe that the court just heard. The New York Times had a headline, Justices Limit Rights Suit Against U.S. Corporations. But then Slate had a headline, Progressives Earned a Qualified Supreme Court Win from Clarence Thomas. So it seems like there might be some murkiness around the ruling or what it means or where it might lead. Can you talk us through what this 8-1 court ruling said or maybe didn't say or couldn't say and what you think it adds up to? Sure. It can be difficult to make sense of the ruling, and there are different ways of viewing it. You can view the glass as half empty or 
as half full. As you suggest, the fundamental issue is what is the responsibility of U.S. companies that are engaged with companies abroad that, according to the allegations in the complaint, use child slaves. This particular case was brought under a very old statute known as the Alien Tort Statute, which allows aliens to bring claims in U.S. court for violations of international law. There's no doubt that slavery is a violation of international law. So then the question becomes, what amount of involvement of the U.S. company in the slavery is sufficient to bring the claim? Now, for a number of years, the court has been wrestling with the question of whether corporations can be sued under this statute at all, or whether it only applies to individual defendants. And the court has ducked that issue on a number of occasions. In fact, the majority opinion ducks it in this case, too. But if you count the votes in the various concurring and dissenting opinions, you find that there are actually five justices now who think that corporations can be sued under the Alien Tort Statute. So that's a win for the plaintiffs. But on the negative side, the court said that the allegations in this complaint were impermissibly extraterritorial, which really means too much stuff happened outside the United States and not enough stuff happened in the United States. And the court said there had to be more than just decision-making in the United States in order for this statute to apply. So going forward, I think it's going to be tough for plaintiffs to allege enough to have their cases heard. They're going to have to allege some conduct in the United States in connection with the slavery abroad that goes beyond just making decisions. And I'm not sure exactly what those cases are going to look like, but I don't think they're going to be a lot to satisfy that standard. And in that sense, I think this is a defeat for the plaintiffs. Well, let's talk a little bit about the alien tort statute that was brought to bear here. We're talking about a metric that was introduced in 1789, right? So I know a lot of listeners are thinking corporations as, wait, as individuals, as people, and they're thinking about Citizens United. Has the law grappled with this idea of corporations as people and who's accountable within a, is the bigger picture that the law has not caught up with how to hold corporations accountable? Or what do you think is going on there? Well, so you're right. It's a very old statute. It was part of the first Dictionary Act that set up the federal courts in 1789. It's important to realize that international law looked a lot different in 1789 than it does today. There was no international human rights law in 1789. It's mostly a post-World War II, post-Holocaust development. But the statute is written in broad terms. It doesn't limit cases to the kinds of claims that the framers would have understood. It refers to any violation of what they called the law of nations or what we call international law today. So we've got the development of international human rights law, but we've also got the question of to what extent that applies to corporations. And it's quite clear that corporations were held accountable 
by the Nuremberg tribunals and have been considered responsible for human rights violations in various contexts. So I don't think there's a lot of dispute about the idea that international human rights law can apply to corporations. So the question is whether this particular statute applies to corporations. And, you know, there's no limitation in the statute itself. There's nothing in the text of the statute that suggests that it should be limited in that way. And while some justices would like to draw that distinction or have wanted to draw that distinction in past cases, five justices in this case found no basis for doing that. And that includes the three liberal justices plus Justice Gorsuch and Justice Alito, who are not, one would think, particularly sympathetic to human rights plaintiffs, but they just didn't see a basis for distinguishing between individuals and corporations as defendants. Well, I want to be clear, old law is not automatically bad law. You know, um, just just being old doesn't doesn't mean it's bad. Um, But it does sometimes seem like the tools are not upgraded to the problem. You know, um, and I think that's what folks may be thinking. But as part of your piece that you wrote recently, you did say, if we're talking about stopping forced child labor, this ruling is meaningful and it's one thing, but there are other legal tools that folks could use. So if I could just ask you coming out of this, if folks think, well, then there's no way to hold a transnational company accountable in any way for for things involved in their supply chain, there are other legal tools available. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, going forward, U.S. companies can be sued for involvement in child slavery or any kind of slavery or any kind of forced labor under a different statute. Congress has passed something called the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act, the TVPRA. And this statute creates a cause of action against defendants who have benefited from slavery or forced labor. And it's been used to sue corporate defendants in a variety of different contexts. Now, unfortunately for the plaintiffs in Doe, it's a pretty new statute and it's not retroactive, which means it, it doesn't apply to child slavery that occurred before the statute was passed, which is the case with the Doe plaintiffs. But it's a very powerful tool to attack forced labor and child slavery. And the standard that the defendant just has to benefit from that action is a very low standard because you can certainly argue that by being able to buy cocoa at a lower cost, because the farms lowered their costs by using slaves, that's benefiting from. And I think where the consumer comes in is is at that point, because we're not going to necessarily know what happens behind the scenes in other countries, in the supply chain. And so folks are looking for the law, frankly, to protect them from being complicit in something like child slavery. It sounds like you're saying the Supreme Court was not trying to avoid the question, but simply saying that with the laws at hand and with this particular case, they weren't able to do what some folks might have wanted them to do. 
I think that there were some problems with the allegations in this case. The justices seemed to feel that not enough facts had been alleged about the involvement of Nestle and Cargill. But there is a legal effect to them going forward because of this other statute. And so one hopes that they will exert more pressure on their suppliers to shape up with respect to their labor practices. I should stress also that litigation is not the only tool, and it's probably not the most effective tool, mm-hmm. uh, for dealing with these kinds of problems. Many companies have adopted codes of conduct that apply not just to them, but also require certain conduct and certain standards of their suppliers in the supply chain. It can sometimes be difficult for buyers to monitor their supply chains. I don't think that's true in this case. But establishing codes of conduct to prevent the violations from happening in the first place is a far better thing to do than letting the violations happen and then seeking damages after the fact. I mean, we want child slavery to be a thing of the past. We don't just want the plaintiffs in a case like this to be able to get damages. Absolutely. Well, we're going to end on that note. We've been speaking with William Dodge, professor at University of California, Davis School of Law. Thank you so much, Bill Dodge, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you very much. The Senate Armed Services Committee issued a report in late 2008 finding former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld and other high officials responsible for abusive treatment of detainees in Guantanamo, Iraq, and Afghanistan. But corporate media didn't exactly leap on the story or its implications. The New York Times, for example, buried it on A14. Counterspin spoke at the time with esteemed rights attorney Michael Ratner of the Center for Constitutional Rights. Ratner had just published a book titled The Trial of Donald Rumsfeld, a Prosecution by Book. He spoke with Counterspin's Steve Rendell. As someone who is very familiar with this story, what do you think of the Senate Armed Service Committee report? Are you happy with its findings? When I get calls from press about it, and I got a few, they said, well, really, what's new in it? And I said, what's new in it is that it's actually extraordinary because what happened here is 25 senators, Democrats and Republicans, Levin and McCain, said the torture program, they called it the abuse program, but we all know it's the torture program, uh, is at the feet of Donald Rumsfeld and other high-level officials, and not just Guantanamo, but Iraq, Afghanistan, and other places. That's incredibly significant. It's, it's bipartisan. It's putting it at a high-level officials. It's rejecting the bad apples defense, and it goes even farther. What's interesting, it also says the techniques that Rumsfeld was using in these places and that other high-level officials authorized were guaranteed, were actually designed to get false information and false confessions. They weren't even designed to get real information. So that actually is new. That is really new, and that just puts to rest any idea that this was something that worked. So I, I consider the report to be a major step forward for holding high officials accountable and for prosecuting them. Well, what about the fact that it wasn't big on naming names except in the Rumsfeld case? And do you think it misses the mark by having the buck stop more or less with Rumsfeld and not more emphasis on higher-up officials? First of all, we haven't seen the full report yet. That's classified and it's coming out. So hopefully some of that will be remedied by those issues. But of course, I agree with you that it looked at a particular program and it says in the report itself that it was stonewalled. It doesn't use that term, 
by the CIA that they didn't cooperate. And one of the worst torture programs here was the CIA secret site program headed by George Tenet, who then received the Medal of Freedom from the president after he was no longer CIA head. And they could not get the information, at least they claimed they couldn't get it from the CIA. And of course, that was the nastiest and dirtiest programs of them all. So that was a big exception. And of course, the other names. I mean, we, we know the names, and they even came out the next day when Cheney actually gave an interview that said he was responsible for helping design, approve, uh, he didn't call it the torture program, but the waterboard program, the program for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, which was actually the waterboard torture program. Uh, so that the report didn't say that. It actually took Cheney himself uh, to later admit to a, uh, essentially a felony. Uh, that was a weakness. It was, it was really confined more or less to looking at DOD and Rumsfeld's role. Well, on December 15th, the Salon's Glenn Greenwald pointed out that rather than paying much attention to this important story, many journalists were instead filled with righteous and endless anger over embroiled Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. Uh, likewise, blogger and humorist Bob Harris of BobHarris.com listed several trivial stories that major media featured above news of the Senate report. What about the media's role here? The media's role here was a disaster, actually. This report, even though, as you, as you pointed out, Steve, it had its limitations, this was the most significant report to come out of Congress uh, on this issue of Rumsfeld and torture in the seven years that we've been torturing people. And the media, as you said, other than the Washington Post, they essentially buried it. It wasn't carried by columns. Or you had her look hard for this interesting quote by Senator Levin, who said, I want the Department of Defense and the new administration to hold accountable the individuals who were involved in this program. That essentially means prosecute them. And that's an extraordinary statement by a senator. And it's just as if it fell on deaf ears. So it's quite a moment where the media, of course, accepted all of this for years, didn't really write about it as torture, didn't ever get to the bottom. Now we have a new administration, so you're getting probably a little more strength within Congress and maybe a little more in the media, but still not close to what really should be happening when this country has been running a torture program and, and still is in certain places over the last seven years. Well, going back a few weeks ago, the New York Times had a story on the state of the Guantanamo debate in which it said that government officials have been, quote, outmatched by human rights groups and defense lawyers with their inflammatory accusations about torture and secret evidence, close quote. The Times has it's been a little rougher and better, arguably, on the editorials. I mean, we can talk about this recent one. But on the other is issues, it's been a disaster. There was the quote you just read. There was an op-ed the other day trying to defend renditions. Uh, and there was an earlier article by Mailer about asking for preventive detentions uh, and national security courts with nobody quoted from the other side opposing that. They've allowed this so-called other dialogue or other debate to really flourish, and then they reject op-eds that are quite good, well-written by people saying, we need a prosecutor for torture, we need this, we need that, and that doesn't get in there. But the right-wing views or the views that say, well, we may not want to close Guantanamo right away, we may need to set up national security courts, those are getting plenty of play in the New York Times. And that's pretty sad. Well, what about that recent editorial in the Times? Did that sort of make up for their um, lack of emphasis when the story of the report initially broke? Well, I read it uh, last night as it came out, knowing that it couldn't really be doing what I really think is necessary, which is ask for a prosecution here. But in fact, you read along, and it's quite hard-hitting. It talks about Rumsfeld, Cheney, the CIA, the whole business, 
and it actually says we think a prosecutor has to be appointed. I mean, it's rather obvious. A prosecutor has to be appointed because it's open and notorious criminality at the highest levels of government. And if you allow that to continue, what are you talking about in the future? If you don't punish it, how do you deter it in the future? Mm-hmm. And it transgresses other constitutional limitations on government if you allow it to go on. And then the Times, that's three-quarters of the editorial. Then the last quarter says, well, it's not politically realistic. That's essentially what it says to demand a special prosecutor. And therefore, let's look at some of these other ideas like truth commissions and maybe having you know, the Obama administration quietly essentially look at whether crimes were committed in abuse. And that's a real lack of backbone because it's assuming that the current situation is politically static. And even though the Times realizes that you should have a special prosecutor or a prosecutor of some sort and that you need that, they're saying, let's tailor what we ask for to what we think the Obama administration is willing to do. So the time starts out with this major piece, and then really it's like blowing up the balloon and then pinching it or you know, putting a pin in and taking the air out of what was probably one of its stronger editorials. Your book, The Trial of Donald Rumsfeld, is subtitled A Prosecution by Book. Do you think the release of this report makes it any more likely that Rumsfeld and others might be prosecuted in an actual courtroom? You know, we wrote this book on the, uh, with the idea that we didn't know what would ever happen in this country, that we'd ever get, come close to prosecutions. Things have moved very quickly in the last 10 days. Uh, we had the Senate report. We had Cheney's statement. You have the Times editorial. Uh, things are moving very rapidly. And it's no longer considered crazy and absurd to ask for Rumsfeld's prosecution uh, in a U.S. court. Uh, but what I would like to see happen is a lot of the groups, human rights groups and others, who've been demanding a truth commission, commission of inquiry, uh, to just come on board and say... We think there ought to be prosecutions. That's the way we can get them. If you ask for something lesser, you won't get it. We've been speaking with Michael Ratner of the Center for Constitutional Rights and the author of The Trial of Donald Rumsfeld, a prosecution by book, published this past September. Michael Ratner, thanks again for joining us today on Counterspin. Thank you, Counterspin, for having me. That was attorney and author Michael Ratner, may he rest in peace, speaking with Counterspin Steve Rendell in 2008. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.